The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages. I am Roger B., and this is Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Now, before we get into anything bad, I'm going to get into the good news first. For the first time, and this is back in SARS November. They don't have any sales beyond that, but America's gun sales have gone over a million transfers for 51 months in a row, meaning for 51 months in a row, we've done over a million gun sales per month. Now, that's based on background checks. So there's a lot of states that don't do background checks if you have carry permits and things like that. So this is a conservative estimate. But for 51 months in a row, we've they've sold more than a million weapons each month for over 51 months in a row. That is spectacular news as far as building, uh, I guess, support for the Second Amendment and things like that. That makes a an amazing push towards gun ownership, which, you know, if you're prepared for it and you've thought about it before, it's not a bad time to do it right now. The gun prices are considerably down from where they were just a couple of years ago. And uh, they bumped up last year in October 2023. They were up. from that same time a year ago. So gun sales are on the rise, which is great. It just, and it shows that these people hopefully will realize that their Second Amendment rights are there and they're allowed to use them. And you shouldn't hesitate to do this if you feel like it's something you want to do. You know, don't be afraid of, you know, what the liberals will say or the, the libtards will tell you about, oh, only a pussy needs to own a gun. Well, you know what? It's your right to do so. It's your right to defend your family with the same power that anybody in the government or police department is allowed to defend their family with. And for those people who don't want to have one and want to degrade or talk about people who don't in a negative light, well, you know what? Put a sign in your neighbor's, let them put a sign in his yard or in your neighbor's yard saying, there are no guns here to protect this property. We don't believe in guns. Yeah, just the fact that you have the right provides him protection he is totally unaware of. So I just say, I just dislike people who will claim Oh, any idiot can use that. That's what cowards do. It's like, yeah, right. When it comes down to you facing down armed assailants and you have no gun, good luck. Your last words that pass through your mind are going to be, oh, if I only had a gun. Well, you don't. So if you feel like doing this, if you want to get on the, get on your Second Amendment rights, go out there and exercise your right. It's there. Take care of it. And a lot of this has been driven by a lot of things in the news. I mean, there's been horrific attacks. They say anti-Semitism is up tremendously. You know, racism in general is is being driven upwards. More and more people are being divided, and I'll, I blame that on the media, most of it. Because if they don't divide people into groups and pit them against each other, we would all be looking at the government and the media much more closely and pointing the blame where it really belongs. But unfortunately, we're being put pitted against each other and everybody wants to, you know, get in on it. So who knows? But it's, uh, and you know, there was a rise in ammunition sales also. Those have gone up, uh, let's see, uh, 13% in gun sales and a 32% rise in ammunition sales the last month checked. So this stuff is going, it's going, it's going higher. People are realizing that this right is there and they're realizing it doesn't take much to take advantage of it. You just have to be a law-abiding citizen in good standing without having a, I guess a, uh, a felony record and you should be able to purchase 
almost any kind of gun within your state. So just check on that. Look at uh, what it takes. And if you want to exercise that right, do it. Now, if it's the first time you've ever done this, you've never owned a gun before, I suggest whoever you buy it from or anybody else in the area who provides training, get some training. Even if you have a friend who's an enthusiast, get him to provide him or her to provide you some training. Because it doesn't take much to learn the basics, but you have to learn the basics before you can operate the weapon with any kind of safety in mind. And safety is the number one thing when you're first learning a weapon. And even after you've been using a weapon for decades, safety is the number one concern. But your right is there. It's just sitting there in the Constitution. The little old Second Amendment is just sitting there waiting for you to exercise it. This is not a privilege. This is a right. Now, a lot of people in government, in certain states, view this as a privilege. And they think you need to be licensed to exercise your right, which apparently the Supreme Court is coming down on a lot of these states that are trying to do things like this, and they're shutting them down because they realize this is a right. It's not a privilege. States don't have the ability to limit your constitutional rights. In fact, just recently, uh, Judge Benitez out in the, I think he's the Ninth District Court, well, somewhere out west, he rules over California rules. He presides over California, and he shot down California's ammunition identification scam they were running, where you have to have a card that you have to apply for a permit just to be able to buy ammunition. And he shot that down as completely unconstitutional. So if you live in California and you've only had to go to your local store to buy ammunition, (coughs) that's all changed now. You can have ammunition delivered right to your house from a huge variety of vendors and probably at better prices than you've been able to get. Because the local stores, I'm sure, love that. If nobody in the state could buy ammunition from anywhere other than an ammunition dealer, which usually were gun and sporting goods shops, you know, that's the most... And the most obvious places to go for things like that. But now you can buy it directly from a variety of sources that can sell it to you, ship it right to your house, at least for now. Now, I have to say, like Freedom Week, which is where the magazines, the magazine ban came under attack and was disabled for a week or shut down for a week, and over 1.4 million magazines were shipped to California, standard capacity magazines, not the limited capacity ones that California forces a lot of their citizens to use. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> but um, that, that magazine ban was only for a week, and over 1.4 million magazines were shipped into California during that time, standard capacity, or what California likes to call high-capacity magazines, which is anything over 10 rounds. All those were shipped into California during that one week, that one Freedom Week. And this is shaping up to be a similar thing. All this, people are ordering ammunitions by the case, having it shipped to their household just like they should be able to in America where the right to bear arms. And arms is not just guns. Arms is any kind of ammunition, arms, any kind of, you know, gun parts and things should be, you should be able to own almost anything on that class of weapon or that class of power beyond certain things. There are limitations. Fully automatic weapons, suppress suppressors, those require special licensing. And some states do not allow citizens to have them, which I think eventually is going to come up for a decision somewhere because there's nothing in the Constitution that says you can limit what kind of arms that people can have. And before you get into the old, oh, well, they were talking about muskets back in the 1700s, 
Yeah. Well, when they said freedom of the press, they were talking about a press, a printing press, which means the Internet, TV, radio, any electronic means of transfer is not covered under the First Amendment by that same thinking. And let me tell you, there were repeating arms in the 1700s. They were innovative. They were different. They weren't mass produced because a lot of guns back then were not mass produced. And they weren't that common. But here, common weapons used commonly by U.S. citizens should be available to anybody. And speaking of that, the AR-15 rifle is probably the most common rifle sold in America and has been for probably at least the last decade, maybe even the last two decades. And if you're interested in acquiring your own AR-15 style rifle and you are a listener of America's Web Radio, you can go to our website if you are a veteran and you can sign up to win our giveaway AR-15. So go ahead, look at the website, get signed up, get an entry in, and you could be the lucky winner of an AR-15 style rifle. There's no cost to sign up. There's no fees involved except for the transfer fee. If you win, you will have to get this rifle transferred to you through an FFL dealer. And we will pay for it. Oh, oh, so there's no cost to you even if you win. Awesome. Dave just told me that's included in the win. If you win, they'll pay for the transfer. So all you have to do is sign up. If you're a veteran, you got a list. I think you have... um your start, your enlistment date, your discharge date, and as long as you're honorably discharged from any branch of the military, you are eligible to win a free AR-15 style rifle. You can go on the website. We've got a picture of it on there. It's americaswebradio.com. Go take a look. If you're a veteran, if you know a veteran, get him to sign up. Even if he's not interested, get him to sign up anyway. Maybe he'll gift it to you for Christmas. You know, there's always that chance. So, uh, it is free, no cost to sign up. So go ahead, get your entry in, and let's get this thing given away. How soon, since you're the knowledgeable, you're the encyclopedia of guns at America's <laughs> Radio. Okay. Um, how quickly after Vietnam, I mean, the M16 is <clears throat> virtually an AR-15. It's the military designation for an AR-15-style rifle, yes. Yes, so... But it was introduced in Vietnam. Right. It was in the and, 60s. Yeah. And I I got, I was carrying, not carrying, lugging around an M14. Yeah, they're a little bit heavier than an M16. Oh, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> and the ammo's and, uh, twice as heavy, and too. And I was issued a 16. Wow, okay. And uh, it was all the difference in the world, obviously. Right. But we didn't have one in civilian life until after Vietnam. How soon after Vietnam did the 15 hit the market? That I don't know. That would be a little uh, odd statistic to know. It probably wasn't too far after. In fact, it may have even been before it was issued to military troops. It may have been available on, on the civilian market. Armalite was really good about letting stuff, developing stuff for civilian markets as well. Well, and, you know, in, in Nam, they found a lot of problems that AR hadn't figured out. Uh, right, there were some issues. Cleaning right, well, most of that was due to the powder they were using in the ammunition. Oh, and I got another question. Yep. I was reading an article about the 15, and um, I had never heard this term before, but then again, I'm, I can't read and write anyway. So. <laughs> you can see uh, pictures, though. <laughs> uh, when did the term volcanic shell 
come out. Do you know? Oh, that was a company that used uh, Volcanic. I think it was an uh, an ammunition manufacturer. Okay, for the AR. That I don't know for sure. I think they they made all kinds of shells because I've seen collectors boxes of all different kinds of shells made by Volcanic Arms. Yeah, huh. they were a manufacturer of ammunition. Because I've never heard that term before, and and the the use of it in this article I was reading about 15s was when the 15 was developed, it demanded the volcanic round. Oh, okay. Which I I pictured it as the explosion of the, <laughs> the cap, you know. And, and no, I think shot. it was just a manufacturer of the day. Yeah, they had. They may have won the first military contract to produce the ammunition for it, and they probably met very specific criteria. But unfortunately, the powder they first were using in a lot of the ammunition was fa- fairly dirty burning, and that's what caused a lot of the smaller passages and gas ports and stuff in the original M16s to clog up and have to be cleaned way more frequently than they do now. Once they realized where the problem was, they changed the type of powder used in the shells, and it burned a lot cleaner and left a lot less residue, and their cleaning was not as required as frequently as it was with the original powder and the original shells. uh, Very uh, sophisticated instrument that every soldier carried to clean his M16 with. Either a Q-tip or a pipe cleaner, <laughs> I All think. on both. Really, I know those are issued now as, as parts, yeah. Shaving brush. Oh, really? Okay, yeah, I guess for the bigger parts. But I remember they used pipe cleaners because they had to clean the gas port yeah. that went from the bolt all the way up to the front sight because that, when the bullet was fired, the gas was siphoned off from the barrel into that port to push gas backwards to operate the bolt. And because the powder was so dirty, it would tend to clog that tube up. You'd see guys sitting around all over the place with their with their shaving brush cleaning, particularly, obviously, the outside of the Right, and some of the larger parts, for yeah. sure. But, uh, yeah, there was a, I think there was and a... And you'd see them in their helmet liners. Oh, yeah, okay. I could see that. Yeah, you've seen that in some of the movies. Yeah, they show that. They have the strap around the helmet, and they tuck stuff in there, whether it be a flask or a shaving brush or whatever their favorite thing to carry around was. Yeah, but that, and that would be great for outside of the gun. But the biggest problem with the early ones was the powder was not burning as cleanly as they needed to, and it clog up that little gas port. Because it's a tiny little hole in the barrel where the gas bleeds off into the gas tube and goes back into the action. And as that dirty gas comes out of there and gets back into the action, it would gum up the action as well. So cleaning was extremely important, especially in the very early days of the M16. And, and our soldiers would think that the M16 could go where the uh, 47 could go. And it couldn't. It, it actually has a, probably a little more range. The the range of the M16 bullet, the 5.56, is probably a little better than the AK. Well, the AK has a lot more of an arc at distance, but it does uh-huh. have more weight in the bullet. No, I'm talking about when I say go, I'm talking about trumping through the bra. Oh, no, yeah. M16 was a very delicate weapon, especially when it first came out. It still is a little bit more so than the AK, but the AK is stamped steel. It's not forged or uh, anything like that so it doesn't have it's built to be cheap and effective and it is is. now the accuracy on the older ones were not near as good as the ar-15 could shoot circles around an old ak and what did they do to what did ar do to clear 
The Flash Suppressor. Oh, I don't know. I guess they had... Was that building up with junk also? Oh, well, the first Flash Suppressor was was like that. Like a three-prong, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't close. Right. And so as you were going through the brush... Oh, we would catch on things. catch on limbs and leaves and everything. Right. That is, so, that's right. I have one of those on one of my older weapons. Yeah, the three-prong so they, Flash Suppressor. They put a ring around the top of it. And you know what they called it after they did that? The Birdcage Flash Suppressor. I didn't know that. That's what it was called. Yeah. If you tell somebody an AR-15 with a birdcage flash suppressor, it's a very specific type. It's the bars all there with the ring around the end. It's ringed on the front and the back. Yeah. But the old one had just three prongs sticking out. And, yeah, it was open. It had open gaps in the front of it. Oh, if you yeah. push it through things, it would catch on anything. Yeah. It would, uh, you know, this was, that, that's, that, that's what I was saying about, the American soldier, when they got issued, and they'd been carrying around the 14 at the first. Of, yeah, know. now an M14, I believe, has a closed suppressor on it, too. It's a lot longer, but it's closed on the end. It's got the ring around the end of it. That, that was after they had the trouble with. Oh, with that on the M14? Yeah, well, maybe, yeah. Uh, but what I started to say was that, um, you know, the 16 just wouldn't go through the mud and grits like the. AK-47. It had a lot tighter clearances in it. Yeah, it did. And, uh, you know, that's when they modified the flash suppressor. That's when they modified a lot of stuff on it. Well. So it would go through the jungles better. Right, and exactly. And trigger pull issue initially, too. Was, oh, was it a little heavy? <laughs> no, it was light. Oh, oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. They tried to make it a more accurate weapon. In front of you. Yeah, as long as you did had that safety off. Yeah, that thing was a, a danger. I guess any gun is. But yeah, the AK was built for a different purpose. It was also built a lot older, too. It, it came out in 1947. Thus, it was automatic Kalishnikov 47, which is... Kalishnikov is the guy who built it. Mikhail Kalishnikov, he designed the weapon. Well, they are... AR was no no the AK forty seven yeah AK forty seven in fact there's a picture there's some pictures out there floating around of Mikhail Kalishnikov and um, Eugene Stoner holding each other's weapons the two most prolific weapons of the of the twentieth and probably up to the twenty first century and uh, it's kind of funny you know you see the guy who invented the AR holding the AK forty seven and the guy who invented the AK holding the AR kind of examining each other's masterpieces I guess you could say well I, I think uh, particularly if you know the story behind the AK forty seven I know they were trying to be something inexpensive and effective and be able to mass produce it fairly easily yeah and it was it was. It wasn't like he had a laboratory behind him helping him figure it out. It was basically him on his own. Right, right. Putting, putting the magic puzzle together. Well, right. I mean, most gun, most of the best gun makers all worked fairly independently. I mean, that was, that's like, well, Stoner had a company behind it, but he had all his ideas. I mean, most gun, uh, I guess inventors tend to work with the ideas they've got. You know, and they work with that and they apply it to different things. You know, Stoner did that, but he had, he finally ended up getting government contracts, which probably saved his company. Because if he had just been in, in the civilian market, I don't know if he would have made it. And then what, Glock just died a few? Oh, Gaston Glock, yeah, he was another one. He had never designed a weapon before he designed the Glock 17. 
He had ne- he wasn't a weapon. He used to work on, I think, watches and clocks and things like that. That's where he got his mechanical expertise from. And then he decided to apply it to the weapons, thinking, if I can build a clock, I should be able to build a Glock. Oh, yeah. It was, and it's funny because people said, well, 17, because it holds 17 rounds. Nope. The Glock 17 came from the 17th attempt at building the gun. Huh. And, yeah, and Glock would always go just in order from there. Like I say, there was the 17, then the 18, which was a fully automatic version of the 17. And then they went to a 19, which is a compact version of the 17. And from there, they went on to different calibers and different sizes of pistols. I want to say they're up to 48 or 49 now in models available and stuff. I would have hated to have been the guy that test fired the first Glock. Well, I think, well, he did it himself. From what I understand, Glock, Gaston Glock tested his all weapons before he even thought about submitting them to anybody. Hmm. And fortunately, everything he built, from what I remember, everything worked or at least functioned with no safety issues. Well, he came out with two hands, so I guess. It yeah, yeah, he still had his hand, so you know, nothing blew up. <laughs> well, yeah, it's another thing. If people think the 9mm is such a, it is a great cartridge, phenomenal cartridge. It was designed in the early 1900s by the Germans. Yeah, the, the, the Luger. The Luger for World War One, Right, and uh, it's a, 19, a 9mm Parabellum, and Parabellum in Latin means for war. So it was designed specifically for wartime handguns. So, and the fact that it's still around, uh, here we are, you know, a hundred years later, and it's still probably the most popular handgun cartridge in the world, says a lot for, for the invention of it, yeah. Now they've modified it and stuff. There are different versions, in fact, as guns became more modern, they can adjust the 9mm to produce more pressure, more velocity, more power, and you'll see these rounds labeled sometimes as plus P, which means plus pressure. Which means if you see a plus P, do not fire that in any vintage weapon. It is not designed to handle anything but standard pressure. So be aware of that. You know, there are additional power ratings of the 9mm. They have a plus P, and then I think they have a plus P+, which is even more than the plus P. And that has to be a modern weapon capable of holding extreme pressures. Okay. Me as the owner... Okay. ...should know that, but... I would venture to say as I'm sitting here, you just talked right past a bunch of owners, particularly talking about ammunition. Right, that may not know that, yeah. Well, the gun dealer selling, well, obviously not. He doesn't know what, you you could be shooting in a rifle for all he knows, and he doesn't know what you're shooting it in. Now, if you tell him or... If you tell him this is for a Luger, he'll tell you, okay, nothing with a plus P after it. In fact, he should very not even the NATO. The NATO spec 9mm is a little hotter than the standard civilian version also. So he'll probably recommend the lowest load they have, the least powerful cartridge for an old vintage weapon. And if you own a vintage weapon, hopefully you know enough about it to where you know not to fire the most modern ammunition. Now, that's happened in a lot of cases. There's a lot of cases where... um <clears throat> They've developed more powerful versions of the same cartridge, and the plus P has been the designation. And, now, and I guarantee, I'll, I'll make you a bet. Okay. Most people only think about a problem in size as opposed to a problem in 
Oh, and yeah, modern cartridges or yeah. pressure, things like that. Oh, absolutely. I was a range, I was working as a range officer one day and a guy was shooting his pistol and he would get one or two shots out of it and it kept jamming. So he called me over. I took a look at it and I'm looking around. He picks up one of the shells he fired and apparently he was firing nine millimeter ammunition in a 40 caliber weapon. <laughs> Because he went to the front, he showed him the gun, and they looked at it and did not look at the designation of the weapon. Did not they, it looked like a? It, I mean, nine millimeter and forty caliber are one millimeter apart. It's a nine millimeter to ten millimeter. Forty caliber is a ten millimeter. So it's not a very huge difference. But always identify what cartridge your weapon takes if there's any question about that. Usually, it will be stamped on the gun, on the barrel, on the action. Something will be stamped with the caliber on it. In fact, I think that was required after sometime in the 1800s. They required a stamping of cartridges. Once cartridges became enclosed and you weren't loading a ball and a bunch of powder into the front of the gun, you had to have a stamping of what uh, what type of cartridge it was built to accept. But the plus P designation goes for there's 38 special. That's a plus P. They have a 40 cal. That's plus P, I believe. They have a 44 Specials, which are plus P. Hey, can't you see some of the cowboys of the turn of the century? What the hell is this? <laughs> yeah, the little bullets, especially because I mean, forty-five calibers, forty-four calibers. Now they had thirty-eights and stuff like that back then too. And then they, all, I guess they all. Well, obviously they all came in revolver versions, right? Because that's all they had. Yeah, semi-automatic versions. No, that was, um, I don't know even when the first, I think the first mass produced semi-automatic was probably in 1905. That's when Colt made his first version of the Colt 45. And then he refined it and it became later the 1911, which is, I think, uh, the year it was adopted by the military or the year he designed it. That was John Browning. He was probably one of the most prolific weapons designers of the 20th century. Even today, with all the weapons, Glock and everything else, uh, particularly for any service person, 1911. Yeah, it's it's iconic in a way that I don't think there'll ever be another weapon that will have the same, you know, sen- sentimental feelings about it as 1911. <laughs> My dad was a commander in the Navy, and he used to kid about the fact that more people were killed with a thrown forty-five, <laughs> and a fired one. <laughs> well, originally they were steel frames, steel slides, so they were a little heavier. Yeah, that's something. But I mean, you know, they were reasonable weapons at the time. But the thing is, was the forty-five is a fairly powerful for a handgun cartridge, and uh, with the minimal training a lot of guys get on pistols in the armed services. It's difficult to be accurate with a pistol of that amount of power if you're not well trained with it and used to it. You know, rifles are a little different, mostly because of point of contact. You have two, three points of contact on a rifle. Usually your shoulder, your, your weak hand goes on the front, strong hand goes in the back, and your shoulder, you have three points of contact, so it's much easier to be more accurate. With a handgun, you have two points of contact at best if you have both hands on the weapon. Now, if you're firing with one hand, you have one point of contact. I've seen a guy go from standing position and not qualifying to on a on a forty-five. Yeah. To a squatting position and qualifying. Yeah, because you're more stable like that. Because you're making a larger platform. 
It's like if you use your fingers. You have one finger on the table. You can move it around anywhere you want to go. Two fingers on the table. You're limited to a, a one plane. Three fingers, you can't move. You know, you can't pivot it around. It sits on the table. It's stable. You need at least three points of contact to be as stable as possible with any kind of weapon. That's why handguns are so much harder to master than rifles. It's so much more fun. It just depends. I mean, I like them all. I don't just, oh, I like all my babies. Whether they're rifles, pistols, shotguns, I like them all. <laughs> but yeah, it's just. Shotgun takes a little out of target practice. Yes, it does. You know, unless you're shooting slugs and sighting in for deer hunting, then, you know, yeah, shotgun gives you, and it's not as big a spread as you see most of the time. In movies, they'll show it hitting like, you know, four feet across it, you know, when you're across a room. That's not how a shotgun works. You know, it's not going to spread that much in that short amount of time. But yeah, it does spread out and it's more of a point and shoot rather than an aim and shoot. But, of course, if you're shooting slugs to it, which is a solid piece of lead, you're going to have to aim just as carefully as with any other rifle or handgun. It does require more aiming. But, you know, the thing about handgun is, like I say, only two two points of contact. Now, if you're kneeling and you have your elbows sitting on your knees or on your legs and you have the gun sitting on something, that gives you that third point of contact and you can have a much more stable platform setting the pistol on top of something other than holding it with just your, just your hands. All right, we're going to come back right after this. I am Roger B. This is Locked and Loaded, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Attention veterans, America's Web Radio has a contest just for you. We are giving away an AR-15-style weapon to a lucky veteran. If you are a veteran or active duty, you can enter for a chance to win by submitting an entry form at americaswebradio.com slash giveaway. That's americaswebradio.com slash giveaway. Please read the official rules for more information. Good luck, and thank you for listening. If you love classic cars, you're going to want to listen to The Classic Car Show with Tom Cox and Richard Lentinello on America's Web Radio. Live every Saturday at 9 a.m. Eastern at americaswebradio.com or on demand on your favorite podcast app. Attention veterans with PTSD. If you can't sleep at night, listen to A Veteran's Place, hosted by Dr. Don Moeller, at 10 a.m. every Thursday for your answer to sleeping here on the Veteran Station, owned by a vet, with shows just for vets. americaswebradio.com Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to The Doctor's Lounge, where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. This is Roger B. You're listening to America's Web Radio, and the show is locked and loaded. And right before we left for the break, we were talking about uh, various a- ammunition differences and how some of the ammunition of late has been modernized tremendously. And you have options if you have a modern weapon. Now, I will tell you, though, be very careful if you're using any type of improved ammunition or any kind of plus-pressure ammunition, especially if you're using it in a gun that was not designed to shoot it. Now, that's something that uh, it's not usually a problem because the plus-P ammunition, the modernized ammunition in certain calibers, is a lot harder to come by, and it's usually something that hunt, people hunt down specifically if they have the weapon to shoot it. 
One case I know, there was a guy, they de- they developed a 4570 cartridge that has a lot more pressure than the old 4570. And he shot a modernized 4570 in an old trapdoor Springfield, and it pretty much destroyed the action. He did not get hurt, but it blew pieces of it all over the place. Because, you know, these have a lot more pressure than what these weapons were originally designed for. Now, uh, Ruger's, Marlin's, some of these other weapons, they're designed to handle the additional pressure. Now, with an additional pressure, a 4570 becomes a super formidable weapon, even against the largest game animals. Even against something dangerous, and that's something to consider. Now, most of the plus P stuff is designed for pistol cartridges because usually pistols are lacking. Now, there are some, like I say, the 4570 is a hugely popular cartridge, and a couple manufacturers decided they would make guns that could handle a little bit more pressure than the old original loadings. So be aware of those. If you have a modern weapon, by all means, take advantage of these. But with any weapon... <clears throat> You want to be careful not to feed a weapon a standard diet of plus P's or improved or uh, plus P plus or any kind of improved cartridge powered because the action will can suffer from damage if it's uh, exposed to that too much. And it may just limit the lifetime of it too because whenever you have increased pressure, you have increased velocity and the increased velocity leads to more wear and tear on the barrel, more wear and tear on the gun. So just be aware of that and be careful when you're using it. But if you have a modern weapon, the plus P stuff is awesome. It can give you a lot of extra stopping power with a smaller cartridge. Because I know the 45, like, like you were saying, Dave, the 45 is just, it's legendary. It's iconic. It's, it's the pistol that was, that won two world wars. Okay. We're going to say it. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the way it's, it, they like to remember it. But even with that in mind, it is, an older weapon, older design, so you do not want to use any plus P cartridges in most of the 1911s, especially the older ones. Okay, Mr. B. Uh-oh. We'll make, a, we'll make the folks a deal. After we've given away the AR-15... Okay. Uh, we've heard from some people. What would you think about giving away... A 1911. That would be, of course, giving away any gun is great. I mean, I don't, I don't have any problem with that at all. That would be awesome. But there's so many choices. You know, that'd be the thing. And there's so many different variations of the 1911 out there. You'd want to stick to something that gets sort of original design at least. Exactly. Oh yeah, we would. And, <clears throat> uh, could be even more than that. Um, more than that. Yeah. Oh, like yet a little improved one. Yeah, because the new 1911s have so many additional features that make them so much better than the Aren't original military ones. Go back to the original. Oh, yeah. The basic, basic 1911. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, they're out you know, there. There's, when I was in the service, in uh, basic, not in AIT, but in basic. Wait, wait, AIT? Pardon? What's, AIT. What's that? Advanced Infantry Training. Oh, okay, I see. I didn't know that. Uh, or some people say Advanced Individual Training. Okay, either way, extra training. You go to BASIC <laughs> and then you go to AIT. Okay. And you don't do some of the grunge in AIT that you do in BASIC. Like uh, there was an E6 sergeant that we'd go and clean 45s that had come back from the range. Oh, okay. In BASIC. 
right. do sort of skunk jobs. <laughs> and this guy, the sergeant, and if you get any of the Sullivan in your eye, <laughs> Sullivan. <laughs> yeah, he, he was quite astute. But what I loved, and, and I I love cleaning the weapons. And I, I I'd rather clean that, weapons than toilets. Yeah. <laughs> I, I take the 45 apart with my eyes closed. Yep. And then put some of them back together with my eyes closed. But, uh, <laughs> I didn't want to fire that one. But, no, you know, it, 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 it's it's an easy weapon to work on. But the interesting part was, and I would love a military 1911 that has gone through probably basic and maybe an AIT group, but not gone through Vietnam or gone through a war. Right. Uh, yeah. the, I, I don't know about today's well, some 1911s, of them. but some. The, the old 19, uh, 1911s would loosen... As Great. they get shot, yes. Uh, after, uh, I don't know, a few months, few years. Or yeah, after after a few thousand rounds, they will loosen up a little bit, yes. And, uh, now, the steels have gotten better, though, so they hold clearance a lot better now than they used to. Yeah, they used to be <laughs> loose as a goose when, by the time we'd get them and clean them. And, uh, and there wasn't any way to really tighten them up. You, no, because the way they were designed, yeah. I mean, um, that's one thing. The looser they were, the more reliable they were. The tighter they were, the more accurate they were, but the less reliable. Yeah. You have to have that balance between reliability and and durability, you know, or accuracy between durability and accuracy to make them loose enough to function every time, but tight enough to where they're accurate. Yeah, because you could. I had some so loose you could literally you shake them and hear them rattle. <laughs> well, not only that, but you could you could move the action on them. Oh yeah, while you're shooting, it would hit a different point every time. Yeah, yeah. And, well. And don't want. anything mechanical will wear out. Anything with moving parts will wear out. And especially at the speed that... Yeah, at the, the 45 is coming out of there, like 800 and something feet per second out of a standard round, yeah. 230 grain bullet at about 850-ish feet per second, yeah. And it makes that action move. Right, well, because it's all just recoil driven. Yeah. The bullet firing is what drives the action back, and those springs would get loose too. Now, a lot of times you can replace the springs in there and tighten things up a little bit and give it a little bit uh, more accuracy. Also, they've learned a few interesting tricks, like, say, harder materials in certain parts of the barrel and slide. And they also, a lot of the high-end 1911s won't use the standard bushing. They'll just make the barrel a cone shape, kind of a uh, starts small at the back and gets bigger to the front. And as the action locks up on it, it locks up with the front of the slide. Same thing with the bushing. If you fit the bushing to the barrel and turn down the rest of the barrel so it's not the same fit as the front, you can gain a lot more accuracy and still keep the reliability. They've learned how to work on them and make them much more reliable while retaining accuracy also. <laughs> Bye. Right after I went into basic, uh, the armors changed. They had been basically bookkeepers and uh, taking care of their armories with account and make sure that all the weapons were accounted. Oh, right, right. Yeah, you got to make sure everything's there. 
And then they uh, graduated them into, instead of sitting on your butt all day, you'll start <laughs> taking care of the weapons. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, they would they would uh, work on 45s and not not extensive work, but well, just replacing worn out parts makes yeah. a huge difference because these a lot of these guns were shot for years, thousands and thousands of rounds, and things do wear out. Oh yeah, I mean I've had I have a Glock I, I shot in competition for years, and it you know there are springs and parts that will wear. Magazines will wear out. Oh, magazines are probably one of the biggest culprits of causing a gun to malfunction. Yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> That's one thing. 1911 magazines are fairly inexpensive, and most magazines for common handguns are fairly inexpensive. And then you get into the high-end guns, of course, and you can pay 50 to $100 to $150 for a pistol magazine. You don't want to wear that thing out. <laughs> no. no. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, basic maintenance would mean changing out wear parts on a more frequent basis. I say the barrel bushings need to be changed more frequently, and springs need to be changed on a regular schedule. It's like a, a car and a servicing. You know, every 25,000 miles, you do a big service of your car, get everything changed, checked, refilled. Same thing on a pistol. After, you know, 10 or 15, 20,000 rounds, you want to run through and give it basically a, um, you know, refurbishing. Change some of the worn parts, things like that. Now, that's one thing interesting about the Glocks. Glock has a lifetime warranty on their guns, and if it ever just wears out, Glock will refresh and replace all the parts for you at no charge. Hmm. And anything that's a wear item, yeah. Which is kind of, yeah, and they have a, I think they have a place, it was up here in Smyrna, and you could actually, used to be able to bring it in there, it was before COVID, you could bring it in there, drop it off, and pick it up whenever it was done, and they would basically refurbish it. Now, the only thing about that is if you have any aftermarket parts in there, they will pull the aftermarket parts and throw in factory parts. So if you have any aftermarket parts that are to improve anything, those would be gone if you let them do a refurbishing. Hmm. So, be aware of that. But if you have a just all stock lock pistol, Easy enough to get them refurbished. Like I said, if it's a lifetime warranty and it's a wear item, now if you drop it or break it or fire the wrong ammunition in it, any of that stuff can void the warranty. But, you know, I've seen Glocks, like a lot of the rental counter Glocks, if they use them for commercial purposes, I don't know if that still applies. But I've seen um, a range Glock that just was so worn that the slide rails in the back of the frame were just breaking off. They were coming apart. But this is something that probably had, you know, over half a million rounds through it. It's being rented out every day for years on end, and it rarely got a cleaning. (laughs) You know, the the range guns are like the bottom of the pile when it came to who got cleaning. But, yeah, I mean, if you replace certain wear parts, a forty-five will last a long time. Same thing with any weapon. You know, there are very few weapons that you can't just – that you can just fire and fire and fire, and they never wear out parts. And as they wear, they're going to lose accuracy also. And that sometimes is the first sign that something's not up to up to specification. Let me ask you something. I, mm-hmm. I can't say how many forty-fives I've I've shot in my time, but obviously, certainly more than one. And I never. I, I and I guess that's. Part of the popularity of the 45, I always personally felt at home with the 45, mm-hmm. no matter where I was or which 45 I was firing. But there are other weapons, other pistols, that you almost want them personalized for you. 
Right, and the 45, they've done that with the 1911 also. I say yeah, the that's mo- what I'm saying. Yeah, the modern versions, and it's not so much that you could probably take any modern 1911 and field strip it and put it back together with no problem, if you still remember how. Because the basic parts haven't changed, but they improve minor things. Like, I don't know if you remember the grip safety on the 1911. Mm-hmm. used to have a little notch in the back. Well, now they fill that notch into where it's a bigger, smoother, curved piece so it fits in your hand better. Still comes out and goes in the same way, but it's just hand, they, they fit it to the frame a little better, so it gives you a better grip on the weapon without having that little notch digging into your web of your hand. Hmm. And they've, and you can get ambidextrous safeties on them that go on both sides of the gun, so you can use it either way, and they extend them also. They extend out like half to three quarters in it, so you can easily get your finger on it without having to get that little notch under your thumb to make it move up and down. It's got a little platform to it, so it's easier to 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 manipulate. Same thing with the slide release. It's usually a little small platform there. They have those that are extended slightly, a quarter inch or so. And then click. Yeah. Well, most of the time when you're putting in a magazine, the... I think the the idea then was to put the magazine in, hit the slide release, and you're back in battery. Now a lot of the technique is to put the magazine in, pull the slide back slightly, let it go forward, and that reloads the gun because the slide release will drop once there's a new magazine in there and the slide comes all the way back. Yeah, the magazine will not be pushing up on the, the slide release to keep it locked back. So you can you can either do it one of two ways. You either feed the magazine, hit the slide release, or feed the magazine, pop the slide back a little bit, and then it's in battery again. And when you pop the slide back, it allows the spring to come fully back and fully forward to give you a little bit more energy to to seat the first round. So it's considered a little bit more reliable to do that. Brett and I were talking earlier this morning about uh, the AR-15 and... Uh, Fully automatic. M16, yeah. And, uh, yes, I've shot it on, I've shot oh, yeah. 16 on fully automatic. Mm-hmm. But I really don't care to. Uh, it's a lot harder to control and you're not going to hit your target as much as if you slow down a little bit. That's one thing they've added to a lot of the newer weapons is they've added what they call a three shot burst switch, yeah. which means it'll fire three rounds with one trigger pull. But like I told Brett, you know, you, if you're on fully automatic, you can go through a magazine in a heartbeat almost. Yeah, I want to say the AR-15 has a, or the M16 has a firing rate of like 1200 rounds per minute. It's really fast. And the other, the other that. kicker is that my Vietnam friends, what they complained about most on fully automatic was continually having to fill up magazines. Oh yeah, I mean it fires fast. I mean, you know. I need to, I'd have to find that, the firing rate of the M16. Uh, I want to say it's over a thousand rounds per minute. I don't, I didn't like it because if you're, if you're in a situation that you're double timing with a M16 on fully automatic, I don't want the guy behind me and I don't want to be the guy side of me and I don't want anybody in front of me either. Right, yeah. Well, here's the thing. The A2 cyclic rate was around 800 rounds per minute, so I was off a little bit on that. You can cut a person in half pretty fast. Yeah, I mean, 800 rounds per minute. Let's see, divided by 60. That's 13 rounds per second. 
That means every one second you're holding about 13 bullets will exit the barrel. So you can empty a magazine in, in two and a half seconds yeah. of sustained fire. Yeah. It's not the most effective way. Now, if you're just, but you know, what they teach you when you're shooting fully automatics is to use short bursts. Well, even, even at that, as I was, I was telling Brett, you know, it sounds like short bursts. Well, that should be three or four bullets, maybe. Right, right. right. If you con- you got to learn to control gotta, that, though. You yeah. got to be able to control your fingers. Right. And go in and come, pull and go off as fast as you'd think. Well, I could, I could handle that, you know. Well, you it takes training. I mean, you can't. Uh, most people would fire off two or three times as many rounds as they meant to, unless they practice it religiously and learn how to have that that trigger control. And the same yeah. thing with semi-automatic. There are people who can manipulate a semi-automatic trigger to fire nearly as fast as a fully automatic trigger. Yeah. So you know, it's just a matter of your your trigger control finger has to be trained, just like with anything to do with guns. Training is one of the most important things to do with any type of weapon. It's almost like in the back of your, well, if you have a brain, that <laughs> lets me and the president out. But uh, you know, as silly as this sounds, when you're on semi-automatic and you're pulling the trigger. You're almost counting to yourself. In the yeah, head. that's you know that's something that if you if you do that a lot if you're in combat you tend to keep track. Now what a lot of companies have done I know with the at the uh, AR-15 uh, there's a company out there that developed a magazine that has a window in the side of it, so you can tip the gun slightly, glance at the window, and see approximately how many rounds are left. If you're down to a half a mag, a third of a mag, less than that, then you know you're getting ready for a reload. Because there's two types of reloads. There's necessity and there's opportunity. Necessity, when it runs dry, you need to reload. <laughs> opportunity is when, if things slow down, you get a moment, you look and see, you go, you know what, I'll keep this half magazine for later, I'll put a full one in now. And you'll reload before you need to, but save the old magazine, of course, for, you know, when that one's gone dry. <laughs> if you're in a firefight, you don't want to sit and contemplate. No, no. Shells have I got right, but if you have a minute, like say things stop for a second, yeah. you do an opportunity reload. You'll pull that half magazine or third magazine out, put a fresh one in going, okay, now if anything happens, I have a full magazine to play with. It's just like with your car, you know, you don't fill it up with gas every time it gets a couple gallons low. You usually wait till it gets about halfway or even some sometimes all the way. Depends on where you're going. If you're on a freeway traveling across country, you're not going to wait for it to get down to a you know an eighth of a tank before you fill it up because you don't know when the next gas station is going to be. You fill it up when the opportunity presents itself. Same thing with the weapon. That's especially important with pistols because most pistols have a lot less rounds in them than do rifles. And if you're using a pistol as a primary weapon, you want to make sure that pistol has a full magazine when you need it. So, as, as silly as this sounds, and particularly to somebody that hadn't been in the situation, but you take that moment that you're changing magazines or whatever, right? Uh, but you also want to be sure you're aware of where your weapons are. That, well, that sounds silly, but I mean, aware of where your weapon is, yeah. Oh, like which way it's pointed or what you're doing uh, with no, it? No, no, where it is on your body. Oh, right, right, right. If you've been through the field or if you've been through the bush, 
No telling what's pulled or tagged or pushed or whatever. Right. Make sure it's back in the proper position. All the switches are done. Yeah, that's like when you do pistol training, once you get to an advanced level, when you start changing magazines or manipulating your weapon during the course of a jam or something, well, that's one thing. When you first learn, a lot of people will just do it. They'll hold it down like where they normally load it. But when you get a little more advanced, you want to hold it up higher. So that way when you're unloading, your view is still of the the area you're you're looking at. You're not looking down because you look down, you're going to get tunnel vision. You'll lose sight of everybody in the background. So you hold the pistol up high, you pop the magazine, you bring a new one in, but you keep your your eyes on the horizon. So that way you don't end up being surprised by looking down and having somebody, you know, come popping up or something and you don't see them. You don't want to give them that time advantage. You want to keep your eyes on your your area you're protecting and be able to load your weapon at the same time or reload it at the same time. And you it's, know when somebody's looking at you, too. Yeah, exactly. You see a head pop up. If you're looking down or you're holding it down doing this, you're not going to see a head pop up in the distance unless you look up every now and then. If you just hold it up higher when you're manipulating it, your eyes are going to be focused. You can focus on two things. So that's a that's a little trick. So if you do tactical training, they'll teach you that. That's the kind of thing you want to learn to do. If you have a jam or something, don't put it down. Manipulate it from a high point so you can still see the battlefield or the field of uh, fire, whatever it is. You want to be able to keep your eyes on that. Yep. And, in fact, they teach you that also when you're coming in. Like I say, you fired your rounds. Everything seems clear. You want to pull your weapon in and you want to look around because you tend to get tunnel vision when you're firing. You'll tend to focus on your target strictly. You want to pull back and move, break that field of view. Move from side, move your eyes from side to side just to make sure you're not missing anything that was in your periphery because when you're shooting, you tend to eliminate some of your peripheral vision. So you want to kind of try and regain that when you're done shooting. And it works both ways. It works. For your friendly fire as well yeah. as for your enemy fire. <laughs> Make sure your partner is not looking down with his gun pointed at you. <laughs> yeah. And it works for driving too, people. Just in case you're noticing, you know, you don't want to look down in your lap when you're driving. You want to look out at the horizon. You want to be able to see everything around you. Peripheral vision is a great thing to have when you're driving or shooting. Both of them are instances where you want to maintain that field of view. You want to make sure you can see when there's a threat. Because, you know, you're most vulnerable when you're reloading your weapon. It's like that's one thing you got to be painfully aware of. Now, with training, you'll learn to do it fast. Learn to do it very fast. Now, and there are, again, if you're doing a forced reload, you're out. You're going to probably drop that mag, put a new one in, and keep going. Unless you're moving. Now, in an opportunity reload, you can pull the magazine out. You put it away somewhere. Even if it's empty, you reload a new one, and you hold on to the magazines better. But if you're being in a situation where you're not going to have the time to pick up the old magazine, that's usually a forced reload. That's why you want to take advantage if you have time to do an opportunity reload. You know, another thing that uh, they'll teach you to work on and it doesn't come easily at all. And that's distractions. Oh, yeah. I've shot competitions like that where they had, um, I guess the scenario was supposed to be you were in a nightclub. Because they had the lights off and they had flashing lights and they had colored lights there that were moving and stuff. They had a disco ball hanging in the top where something was shining lights like a disco ball. And you were walking through the scenario trying to determine who the bad guys were. That was really enlightening to do that kind of training. Well, you know, you're walking, 
walking in on a trail and whether it's actually your name or somebody just yells hey yeah and <laughs> it's, you look away and in that second that you're looking away you can be dead right right if there's people you know plotting against you you want to be careful uh, try and move your position before you start looking you know or at least plant your feet kind of look around before you turn around but it depends, you know, it depends on whether you're in a combat situation or you're just hiking for fun and somebody yells, hey, you're likely to turn around because if they're warning you about something, you wanted to see what they're talking about. You know, see, oh, hey, there's a bear right there. You may want to pay attention to that. With your name on it. Yeah, bears don't, don't negotiate very well. They do what bears do and that's it. There's no, it's like terrorists. You can't negotiate with terrorists. You can't negotiate with bears. They do what they do and that's all there is to it. The only way to do it is to avoid them or shoot them. <laughs> Shoot them first. It's like Osteen the other day had a joke about a bear that was about to get somebody in the forest, and the bear had just gotten religion. Oh, okay. God, and thank you for the meal you're providing me. Oh, that's like the joke about the the bear in the woods and the two guys. And the one guy leans over, starts lacing his boots up tighter. And the guy goes, you're crazy. You can't outrun a bear. He goes, I don't have to outrun a bear. I have to outrun you. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I don't have to do the bear. <laughs> Get away so, from one of them. That's right. For sure. Well, we talked about a lot of different things today. So, but yeah, pistol training, that's one of my favorite things to do. I enjoy that. I like learning those skills. And if you're interested in doing that, go to your local range. I'm sure almost every range in the country has training classes available. And, uh, and there are things that you can do at home too. Like for one, learn the outlay of your house. See if you can walk through it in the dark. I'm not saying with your eyes closed, but just see if you can walk through it at night in the dark. See if you can determine where the walls are, where the doors are, how you would proceed through your house if you were doing it with no light on. Because that, that house of yours, you know it better than anybody else. It should be your home field advantage. And that's something you can practice. If you have a, I recommend getting a plastic practice gun, something that's non-lethal that you, uh, can carry and make it be whatever your personal carry gun is. If you can get a, a plastic or airsoft copy of that, do it. All right. Happy training. Happy gun shooting. I am Roger B. This is Locked and Loaded, and you've been listening to America's Web Radio. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.